Elaine walks into this club, turns to the bartender and says, just hand me a bottle of vodka and a floor plan. This is the Gospel of Musical Theater, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theater Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. Welcome to the Gospel of Musical Theater. I'm Nathan. I'm Peter. I'm so excited that we're working our way through the works of Stephen Sondheim, a, a god of the American musical theater. And Indeed. We finally hit a day that I've been looking forward to ever since we started this series. Yeah, Company Company is probably, I'm sure it's it's a, certainly among my top five Sondheim shows. Is it for you too, Peter? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. It, and also I would say that the show where Sondheim really comes into his own and the show really is identified, I mean, the Sondheim sound, the Sondheim feel, this is this is really where he's coming into his own as, a, as an artist, not just as a lyricist, certainly as a composer, there is a certain kind of Lots of lots of great collaborators on the show. He's not working, you know, in a vacuum by any means. But I would say Company is really the first truly quote unquote Sondheim show that Sondheim writes. Uh, a really interesting, right. a really interesting way to kind of think. So we've we've in some ways been laying what we hope is some good groundwork. Um, we've been talking, especially in terms of uh, West Side Story, Gypsy, ambivalence around the kind of traditional marriage trope, ambivalence around. Uh, romantic partnership, kind of unsettle these guys beginning to unsettle some of the the norms of traditional storytelling, we might say. And company is in so many ways really about, uh, I mean, what do we want to say? The, the death of the death of traditional marriage, the or at least a sort of uh, an existential question around partnership, companionship. Uh, what is the nature of human of human relationship making? Um, so both for Sondheim as an artist, right? We can, I don't want to over -psych overly psychologize this, but I think he's asking questions about this in his own life. Certainly Bobby, the central character in Company, uh, is faced with a deep kind of existential question, turning 35. <laughs> Peter, you want to you encapsulate the plot for us of Company? No. Do as best I, you can. Uh, I, so I think it's what, what I'd like to do is uh, sort of set it in the zeitgeist of its time, because I think it really is a period piece yeah. That remarkably has been able to find expression even up until the reopening of Broadway in 2022, uh, uh, 2021 anyway. Um, and we'll talk about the most recent production. But 1970 uh, is when it uh, opened April 26, 1970, closed January 1st, 1972 was written not long before it opened, uh, a long tryout in Boston. But here's the two sort of cultural markers I'd like to sort of place beside it. One is the rock musical Hair, mm -hmm. um, 1968. Uh, the Tribe, the Hippies, the Free Love, Experimentation with Drugs, uh, complete anti-establishment uh, narrative, uh, critical of the Vietnam War, uh, this is New York in the late 60s, and I think what company does is take some of the same ethics, the so-called new morality, not new morality, but new morality. Right, as of, opposed to old morality. As opposed to the old morality. So that's, that's one piece, I think, to kind of anchor it in its time. Yeah. And the other, and this is to your, your question about the plot summary, uh, the other piece, and this occurred to me just the other day as I was thinking about this, 
is the television phenomenon called Laugh-In. So Laugh-In, same kind of time period, late 60s into the early 70s. Laugh-In was just a series of unrelated skits, Mm -hmm. basically, humorous, great people in it, Artie Johnson, Ruth Buzzy, Lily Tomlin, Joanne Worley, Rowan and Martin themselves, comedians, but not really a through line. There was no narrative. Uh, Things didn't move from, there were repeating sketches, you know, but it, it it was basically skits. It was sketch comedy. So I think you mash those two things together. Yeah. The the countercultural revolution of the 60s exemplified in hair, the kind of sketch comedy, um, even what became improv that led to the development of Godspell, et cetera. And you've got this interesting theater piece, company both referring to company, the need for companionship, mm-hmm. but also company, the sense of, a, a group of players yeah. who are on the stage, organized around Bobby, a bachelor, a lot of friends who'd coupled up, married, um, and he sort of goes from one uh, one couple to another. Uh, they're variously envious of and critical of his kind of open lifestyle. Mm-hmm. He has a one night stand. He asked somebody lots to marry of him. Stands, but yeah, exactly. Lots of one night yeah. stands. Um, three, three different girls that he's juggling at once. At least three that he's yeah, yeah. Uh, living yeah. living a kind of a kind of bachelor fantasy. We might say right. He's yeah. thirty five. He has his own apartment. We assume he's financially successful. Not committed to any one particular person. Having his thirty fifth birthday. That the the conceit of the show, I suppose, right, is that here's a guy who's getting ready to blow his candles out on his birthday cake. All of his friends who are all partnered. Uh, all all heterosexual couples in the original production, five couples kind of gather around him in a sort of quasi, like this isn't, you know, we're, we're in the world of the concept musical, right? This is not meant to be taken. It's not clear that any of these people know each other or have relationships with each other. In some ways, it's almost like, sometimes it's like, you know, Bobby might be on the psychiatrist's couch. This might be uh, a kind of, inter- the whole show might take place in his head. I mean, different directors stage this different ways, but it's it's really, it's a function of his uh, internal monologue, if you like, and then these various care- folks in his life, his friends, and what they represent for him. Um, so to yeah. your point, right, like company there means not just a longing for human companionship. It also means like, these are these are my friends. This is, this, is, this is the company I keep. It's also the company of the show, right? There's a way in which the show is, is very, uh, very obviously a theater piece uh, in a way yes. that, you know, there's no, there's no attempt at realism, there's not even an attempt really at a plot necessarily. The songs comment on the action in the way that you know a Greek chorus might comment on the action of a of a story, but the action is all Bobby, really. And 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 then what he thinks of how he interacts with these five different couples and the the five different situations that he finds when he interacts with each one of them. Yeah, yeah. it's also uh, about verticality, like the original production was this big steel set with three elevators that moved up and down between various levels with the action happening in apartments um, that would be lit. They'd they'd like one section stage elevated and actual elevators coming up and down. And apparently the the great opening song company uh, with its repeated Bobby, baby, et cetera, has this very long note where they sing love. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was because Michael Bennett, who later went on to choreograph and direct 
a chorus line was the choreographer. It took that long for all of the actors to get from their perches in this enormous set down to the stage so they could all be together on uh, in, in an elevator of the show. I in think. an elevator, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They, all, they all crammed into an elevator and it took 40 seconds for that elevator to go all the way down. <laughs> and then the door is open and that's the climax of the song, right? Phone rings, door chimes in, comes company. And that, so Sondheim yeah. says, I wrote, I mean, I basically wrote the song around Michael Bennett's choreography, right? Like, yeah. I mean, using using the the staging and the set itself, actually. In some ways, I think I think the set really inspired the opening number company. Um, it's yeah. in some ways, it's, it's, it's musicalizing this vision of, as you say, a very uh, angular steel glass, non-literal, but you know, what is this? Is this the Manhattan skyline? Is this apartments? I think seeking to illustrate the isolation of modern life, yes. right? The kind of the boxed in nature of what it means to live in a city. So much of company is about the kind of uh, the dislocation of living in an urban environment um, and being, being in all these little boxes. I mean, some, another hundred people is, is the song later on in the show. Uh, where, where we really get that sense of you know, what, 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 it, what is urban life in 1970. It's, it's, there's, there's tons of people and none of us are able to connect easily yeah. with one another, the sense of isolation. City of Strangers, as um, as uh, another hundred people sings it, yeah. and you know, in 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 urban design conversations uh, that I've been involved with over the last twenty or so years, the difference between the vision of the suburb, where there's common space for everybody, there's lawns, there's front and back porches, uh, there's driveways, people sort of see each other coming and going, a kind of horizontal social organization. And then there's the world of the high rise, yeah. the vertical organization where, and I think they're right in, in company to make elevators kind of the, a, a central motif because elevators are one of the few common spaces in high rise apartment buildings. Oh, isn't that interesting? Um, yeah. There's lobbies, I guess, you know, the mailbox, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but but elevators are are shared are shared space. Yeah. Um, and to your point, and I think I think what company's about is this intersection between the new morality and the increasing awareness of social isolation mm -hmm. brought up 
because of urban life. And those two dynamics that people are much freer, uh, sex is much more available. Uh-huh. The consequences of uh, men and women having sex are vastly reduced because of the pill, yep. which really did change everything mm-hmm. in terms of sexual relationships. Women are have much more agency, although there's it's still pretty... It's a, yeah, it's a complicated sexist. agency, but yeah. It's a complicated agency. And men are feeling freer. It's, you know, kind of the Hugh Hefner oh my God, I can, mm-hmm. I can, I can hook up with as many women as I want for Bobby. Have I got a girl it's for unfulfilling. you? Wait till you meet Have her. Have I got a girl for Yeah. But it's ultimately unfulfilling. So yeah. this loneliness overlaid with the, uh, the angst and existential realities of urban living is just, uh, is kind of what gives it its shape and texture. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about the new morality. Cause I think, I think that's a really interesting a really interesting kind of historical phenomenon, but not just historical. In some ways, we're, I mean, you know, I, I would submit we're still living in 2022 as we record this, we're living in the aftermath of the 60s, right? And and Absolutely. the sort of the, the, the throw, at least in, in Western society, um, I think about, you know, Bishop, Bishop John Robinson, honest to God, right? A, a, a kind of a groundbreaking, where by an Anglican cleric, we will we'll claim as, as one of ours, um, this kind of jettisoning of an old way of thinking about moral behavior, ethical behavior, very much grounded in traditional religious texts, we might say, right? That the, the project of the good person was to learn God's law and to follow it. And God's law as interpreted by mostly, we might say, male religious figures, uh, the rules for, for, for living were largely prescribed by religious texts. And they had to do with kind of towing the line and being a good member of society. Um, and in the 60s, that's beginning to change. So honest to God is in some ways seeking to create a, or at least articulate a different a different way of being a good person, we might say, very much grounded, not in traditional scriptural behavioral guidelines, but kind of putting love at the center of what it means to be a good person, right? That love love becomes the, uh, the, the really the only moral principle, at least the, the most important moral principle, the kind of the built-in, I think Robinson talks about it as like the built-in moral compass, right? Love creates a built-in moral compass that re- that replaces really any exterior moral authority. The, the quote is uh, that the new morality, according to Robinson, means accepting as the basis of moral judgments that actual concrete relationship in all of its particularity refusing to subordinate it to any universal norm or treat it merely as a case, but in the depth of that relationship, meeting and responding to the claims of the sacred, the holy, and the absolutely unconditional, right? So yes. grounding any, any idea of morality in authenticity, we might say. And authenticity becomes a really important word in the, in the 60s and 70s, right? This is, you know, we're, we're all going to the, the psychiatrist's couch. We're going into the psychotherapist's office. We're seeking to live our, our authentic life um, yes. That becomes the place where we connect with the sacred, according to the new morality. Now, you and I might, maybe we might want to talk about how how well has that idea aged or not. Um, but I think about you know Bishop Michael Curry, our current presiding bishop in the Episcopal Church, right? Like basically, that's that's his articulation of what it means to be a Christian. It's not about love. It's not about God. Um, we're yeah. we're kind of still, I think, living in the aftermath of Robinson's articulation of the new morality. And in many ways, I think company is also. In a, in, a, in a darker way, I suppose, or in a more complicated way, looking at human relationships, right? If this is now the new site of where God can be found in the world, in authentic human connection, what does that mean if we're living in these urban environments where human connection is at one level, 
so much more widely available with way lower stakes, and yet at the same time, so, so unsatisfying, right? So hard. And that, that's Bobby's big question, right? What do you get? What do you get? That, I, I think that's the question that's kind of propelling him through the whole piece, you know, looking at his friends who are coupling, uncoupling, recoupling, and then he himself, you know, having these kind of transient, re meaningful relationships with women, but, but never quite translating into, into a deeper commitment. Um, and Bobby's really not sure that he wants that commitment, right? I mean, he, he, what, the, 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 the first act kind of closes with him singing, you know, marry me a little, love me just enough, uh, warm and sweet and easy, just the simple stuff. Keep a tender distance so we'll both be free. That's the way it ought to be. So really kind of asking some deep questions about the nature of the, we might say the nature of the new morality, right? Is our human relationships really a place where God can be experienced or not? Marry me a little, love me just enough. Warm and sweet and easy, just the simple stuff. Keep a tender distance. So we'll both be free. That's the way it ought to be. I'm ready. Marry me a little. Body, heart, and soul. Passionate as hell, but always in control. Want me first and foremost. Keep me company. That's the way it ought to be. I'm ready. I'm ready now. Oh, how gently we'll talk. Oh, how softly we'll tread. All the stings, the ugly things we'll keep unsaid. We'll be of love and respect you promise whatever you like i'll never collect right okay then kind of refrain at the end of marry me a little i'm ready yeah i'm ready but but is he really ready and ready for what you know the i'm glad you brought up john h.g e. robinson two other theologians to add into the mix one is harvey cox who wrote a book called the secular city mm -hmm. which kind of celebrated urban life and its complexity and diversity as the place where god could be experienced the other was um, uh, uh, the work of uh, Joseph Fletcher, Joe Fletcher, who wrote a book called Situational Ethics. Mm -hmm. So moving away from the notion that you know duty, to use your language, and I think it's absolutely right, uh, Christian duty, and let me just posit something for argument's sake, Christian duty for men and women included being married 
and staying married and loyal to the institution of marriage. Yep. And that, well, number one, that marriage has never been that staple an institution, I would argue, right. even and maybe especially in Hebrew Bible times where <laughs> you have- There's as many you know, polygamous marriages as there are monogamous ones. <laughs> right, uh, so you've got that. And, and then throughout history, if, if read particularly from minority voices, uh, from women and sexual minorities, uh, gay people, uh, genderqueer folks, there's been a lot more making marriage, uh, an uh, having a, an idolatry about marriage, about the institution, yeah. but it's never been as stable as some of its proponents have argued. Right. And in the late 1960s, it was coming apart at the seams. Yeah. And that's, I think, the kind of background. Uh, well, was it coming apart at the seams or was there, because of this push toward authenticity, a greater openness mm -hmm. about how damn difficult marriage can be yeah. and the living hell that some folks were, were going through. There's a great line in Little Things You Do Together, which is a, one of the great songs, followed by another great song called Sorry Grateful, but it's not talk of God and the decade ahead that allows you to get through the worst. And I, I, I kind of focused on that because talk of God was talk of a kind of moral code, a kind of, you know, well, we believe in God, we believe it's our duty, we believe we're going to stick with this marriage. And, I, and company says, that's not going to get you through the worst. Right. It's just not going to. It's not talk of God and the decade ahead that allows you to get through the worst. It's I do and you don't and nobody said that and who brought the subject up first. It's a little bit. I do and you don't and nobody said that and who brought the subject at first right it's it's right. it's it's and, and in some ways that's I mean kind of illustrating Robinson's point right like there's no there's no sense of exterior duty rules you know social cohesion that's keeping this thing together it marriage if, if it works is found in these it's the little things you do together right it's it's all of the it's the mundane it's the particular it's the the weird often uncomfortable often dysfunctional kinds of ways that couples interact with one another that's what makes 
and I think the song is meant to be deeply ironic, right? Perfect relationships. And the way that that, and the way that, that gets musicalized in the song, it, it almost like you can uh -huh. hear the air quotes around that makes ding perfect relationships. I mean, we're, we're being deliberately ironic. Uh, we're putting air quotes around all of this. We're singing it very much with tongue in cheek. It's a cutesy little, uh, it's a cutesy little number basically about kind of how messed up you know, and all of Joanne, Joanne is the character who's, who's kind of singing it, right? Like I've done it three or four times. Um, she's, yeah. you know, she's sort of the embodiment, I suppose you might say, of a sort of very sophisticated, very uh, urbane, brittle, funny, ironic approach to personal relationships. She knows, right? There's nothing magic about these. They're, they're mostly miserable, but it's, you know, if there's any, if there's any meaning to be had there, if there's any way of, of, of being successful, at, at a marriage, it's in this, it's the, it's the day to day. And that, in some, in some way, sorry, grateful to your point is, is a little bit yeah. a, a, a deeper reflection. That's what the <laughs> husband's saying, right? You're always sorry. You're always grateful. You're always, I mean, what are the, what are the lines? You're always, you're always wondering what might have, what might have been. been. Then she walks yeah. in, you know, and yeah. in some ways she yeah. walks in and that makes everything understandable. And in some ways she walks in and that's everything, right? Like, okay, you know, like that's, that, that's all, all that might have been is completely foreclosed upon because there she is. Harry, you ever sorry you got married? You're always sorry. You're always grateful. You're always wondering what might have been. Then she walks in. You don't live for her. You do live with her You're scared she's starting to drift away And scared she'll stay Good things get better Bad get worse Wait, I think I meant that in reverse you're sorry, grateful, regretful, happy. Why look for answers when none occur? You'll always be what you always were, which has nothing to do with, all to do with her. What you always were Which has nothing to do with All to do with her Nothing to do with All to do with her the great bridge in that song good things get better bad get worse wait i think i meant that in reverse uh-huh uh i think one of one of sondheim's greatest couplets ever i'm not sure what it means i mean i puzzle about it all the <laughs> i don't time. think i don't think he knows what it means <laughs> but it's it, it's this it's this notion of the sorry grateful thing right yeah. this uh if you company is arguing if you want to stay in a marriage there's going to be a part of you that's that regrets that yeah and a part of you that 
can't imagine not being within it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're always sorry. You're always grateful. It's a it's a deeply ironic, deeply moving, in some ways, deeply troubling kind of song. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I guess like I've seen productions of Company where Sorry Grateful really moved me. And I've seen yeah. productions of Company where Sorry Grateful really disturbed me. Uh, right. And sometimes I think that probably, you know, probably says as much about me and where I happen to be in my, you know, in my life at that point. Um, but I mean, and you, sorry, grateful in that way is, is, is a, um, you know, like the whole show, I feel like is deeply ambivalent in terms of ought we to be moved by this or ought we to be kind of horrified? I mean, I, I, maybe this is, you know, a little bit kind of uh, getting us to the end, you know, the kind of great 11 o'clock number, right? Like being like, where does Bobby end up and how are we to read the kind of the great song at the end of the piece being alive, right? Which, which basically is two round, uh, two versions of the same song once sung in a very caustic kind of way, right? All it is is somebody who holds you too close, somebody who hurts you too deep, somebody who sits in your chair, ruins your sleep, makes you, I mean, like basically that's his response to sorry, grateful, right? Everything that you're saying, I recognize, I see it and I don't want it. If that's the best you can do, I've, there's gotta be something better. I'm, I'm better on my own. I am happier on my own. And that was actually, that was the original, um, the original song there was Happily Ever After, which is a cute little waltz ditty that actually borrows a lot of the lines from what became being alive, right? Somebody hold you too close, somebody to hurt you too deep. And the, the, the through line there is, I don't want it. I'm better off on my own. And kind of a little bit of a, a kind of a release for Bobby. Like, I don't have to do this, right? Happily ever after is happily ever after on my own. And dramatically, Sondheim prints, you know, the creators of this thing are like, yeah, we, I mean, that's, no audience is going to want that to be the, like that's just too dark. We especially, especially right. in this, this happy little ditty that Sondheim had written. It's actually, it's a, it's a great number, but it's, it's so caustic. Someone to hold you too close. Someone to hurt you too deep. Someone to love you too hard. Happily ever after. Someone to need you too much. Someone to read you too well. Someone to bleed you of all the things you don't want to tell. That's happily ever after, ever, ever, ever after in hell. Somebody always there sitting in the chair where you want to sit. Always, always, somebody always there wanting you to share just a little bit. Always, always, then see the pretty girls smiling everywhere from the ads and the TV set. And why should you sweat? What do you get? One day of grateful or six of regret. With someone to hold you too close, someone to hurt you too deep, someone to bore you to death, happily ever after. Someone you have to know well, Someone you have to show how Someone you have to allow The things you never allow That's happily ever after Ever, ever, ever after Till now 
basically, yeah. you know, the, the whole nature of human relationality is bankrupt. We're all better off retreating into our little isolated glass apartments and sitting on our own chairs and, uh, you know, and not connecting with one another. That's actually maybe the only, the only place where true happiness can be found. And instead they pull what I think Sondheim found to be a little bit of a cop-out. And he said, you know, being alive, uh, dramatically it works, but it's not, uh, logically, it doesn't work, right? We have not set up this character really, unless it's played really well by a good actor, for Bobby to then make the shift, which he does in the show, right? Closes his eyes. Yeah. I think Amy says, you know, uh, close your eyes and make a wish, Bobby. Want something, want, want something. something. And then yeah. he sings, somebody hold me too close. Somebody hurt me too deep. Somebody sit in my chair, ruin. I mean, like, I want this. I guess I really yeah. do want this thing. And, you know, when staged right, that can be a, a pretty powerful moment because it is a moment of, of vulnerability, right? This guy who has nothing good to say about any of the relationships in his life actually does want something <laughs> and it's to not be alone. He wants to be yeah. alive. And the sense is the only way I can become alive is through relationships with another person. In some ways, this is, this is an illustration of the new morality, right? God is found in my connections with other people as frustrating and exhausting and horrific as they are. That's, that is the only, the only possible way forward in terms of being alive. Um, so is it a cop-out or is it a breakthrough? Somebody hold me too close. Somebody hurt me too deep. Somebody sit in my chair and ruin my sleep and make me aware of being alive, being alive. Somebody need me too much, somebody know me too well, somebody pull me up short and put me through hell and give me support for being alive, make me alive, make me alive, make me confused, mock me with praise, let me be used, ferry my days, but alone. to care somebody make me come through I'll always be there as frightened as you to help us survive being alive being alive being alive Or is it strangely re-embracing the, the, the former pattern? Yeah. Is it, you know, um, we've wandered away. We've, you know, had our experimental early 30s. I had a lot of hookups, done a lot of shit. And now 35, you know what? 
marriage and commitment isn't so bad after all. Yeah. <laughs> better and than the alternative. It's better than the alternative. Yeah. And is that as good as it gets? Yeah. You know, is that as good as it gets? Yeah. When you're talking about sometimes sorry, grateful moves you, sometimes it disturbs you. Got me thinking, does company really kind of present a mirror to the audience? And that is the a reason for its longevity, because by all rights, it should be stuck in the 70s and, uh, and just not go forward. It's kind of dated. Mm-hmm. Yet production after production, decade after decade, it continues to speak to audiences. And, you know, I could say, well, it's just got great songs. And that's really people put up with the plot. But, but when you said that, it really started me thinking, does it really hold up a mirror for the audience as it goes through these little skits, these little sketch comedy pieces, introducing these characters to have everybody who sees it, who engages with the material say, how am I doing in my relationships? Mm-hmm. And what do I think about marriage and loneliness and urban life anyway? Um, I wonder if it kind of works that way, uh, almost like a Rorschach, you know, yeah. everybody's going to see a slightly different show. I have a slightly different experience Yeah. depending on where they are in their life. Yeah. I mean, certainly, I mean, one way that we can look at subsequent revivals of company is, you know, how, how are they seeking to quote unquote update this material, right? I think about the kind of the most recent Broadway revival, which casts a woman in the role of so Bobby with an eye. Uh, Sondheim rewrote a number of the lyrics to kind of make sense of that. My, I haven't seen the production. I've listened to the soundtrack of, of the, the it's a transfer from London. I don't think all of the updates work all that well. Um, right. I, I, Marianne Elliott is the, is the director here. And I, I think what she's trying to do is talk about, I mean, in some ways, like kind of translate the, the very male patriarchal white experience of a single guy in 1970 to a very different, you know, like basically to ask questions about women, which company kind of skirts around, but company's a show about men in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that Marianne Elliott is saying, well, that's, I mean, in some ways, like that's the most maybe time bound aspect of this thing, right? It's a very, uh, it's a very male centric show. What happens if company is about a woman turning 35, which, and Marianne Elliott would say like, all of a sudden, now we're talking about the biological clock, right? So it's not just flirting with ideas of maybe it's time to settle down because I'm 35. It's like, the window on my ability to reproduce is is closing. So I think the newest the newest revival of company, as I understand it, is meant to be kind of seeking to to look at what what it means to be a woman in two, 2022, right? What do I have to sacrifice in order to be in a relationship? I'm at the top of my professional career. I am an attractive person. I can have a lot of men in my life, but I'm asking some pretty existential questions about family. We might say not just about relationship, but now it's about family. So in some ways, that's a uh, that tells us a lot, I think, about the world of the early 2020s, and particularly where women are. I think that's an interesting way of of thinking about with what this material can say. Eh, you know, does it does it always work? You know, to have a bunch of guys taking their their single female friend out and trying to set her up with like that actually reads in, I, to me in a very uncomfortable, creepy kind of way. I agree. Um, so some of it, right? Yeah, just doesn't doesn't quite translate. But I think it's interesting that so many productions of Company are doing interesting things gender swap wise, right? That like. Yeah. In some ways, that's that's one of the pieces of the original material that does feel very time bound. But if you can play around with the gender of these characters, you can, I think, begin to say, as you say, there, there's a little bit of a workshops test there. You can say some interesting things about different 
uh, different as gender norms change, maybe this yeah. maybe some of these questions are still live questions, just not framed in the traditional gendered ways that Sondheim and Firth and Hal Prince are framing them in, in 1970. Bobby, 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 sweetheart, Bobby, baby, you know, no one wants you to be happy more than I do. No one, but isn't he a little bit? Well, you know, you know, face it, no one wants you to be happy more than I do. Better, no one, no but one, isn't he a little bit? Well, you know, you know, face it, no one wants you to be happy more than I do. No one, no one wasn't he a little bit well I don't you know never face it isn't he a little bit well dumb lightweight loveless to to And I think the gender roles is a really important, an important thing. And I'm glad you raised that with, with switching Bobby to be Bobby with an I rather than Bobby with a Y um, and the kind of, it, does it really work? Because two things, uh, f- first, maybe just simply to mention, it's a very white show. Yeah. Uh, and Sondheim is generally pretty white Sondheim. bread. Well, the, the, the Jewish intellectual establishment that, that creates musical theater is a pretty white world. That's one of the, I suppose, problems we might say with, as yeah. we, in the 21st century. We're very aware of that, right? Broadway is a very white world. And you can put a person of color into any number of the roles, but it still is a white show. It still is a boys show, I think. Except for this one number, which I think you could say the company has two 11 o'clock numbers. It's one for, one one for, for a man and one for a woman. <laughs> Isn't that great? And the man's one is much more redeeming, although the women's one, which was written uh, explicitly for, uh, for, for Elaine Stritch, uh, Sondheim learned a little something working on Gypsy and writing for Merman, yeah. uh, he wrote Ladies Who Lunch for Elaine Stritch in terms of the way she expresses herself, the way she thinks, her kind of cynicism. Elaine Stritch referred to the Ladies Who Lunch as Stephen Sondheim's three-act play masquerading as one song. Yeah, it goes through um, and a lot. It goes through uh, the kind of bitchy upper New York, upper West side, I guess you're more familiar with New York geography than me. Um, Upper East side, Uh, ladies who get together and lunch and drink Mm -hmm. and bitch and moan about their lives. And I think hit the point in it, I'd be interested in what you think 
is, okay, so we know Bobby's unsatisfied with his life. We know that getting married today, girl is unsatisfied with marriage. But what about mature women? I mm-hmm. can kind of imagine George uh, Firth and Stephen Sondheim and Hal Prince. What, what's their what's their thing? Yeah. Um, yeah, Joanne's and, interesting, isn't she? I mean, basically, yeah. I think every other every other character in Company is in their early to mid thirties gen- generally. I mean, I don't, I don't, but you know, like they're all they're all more or less in the same general. I mean, so to your earlier point around hair, right? These are not the hippies. These are um, these are kids who probably would have come to maturity in the late fifties, early sixties, and are aware. I mean, in some ways, Marta, who sings another hundred people, she's the new generation, right? Yeah. But Bobby and his con- like, there's you know, there's the, there's the one scene where Bobby, I think it's Peter and Sarah. Oh, I can never remember which husband and which wife is who. But Me Bobby and Bobby and two of them try pot for the same time, right? And it's it's right. kind of it, it, very clearly it's like they're all squares. They're t- uh, taking a tentative step into the 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 world of you know of of hippie culture and it's not really their world you know like they're right. you know they're 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 in a different joanne is is different again right she's very deliberately i think older than bobby uh has a thing for bobby there's certainly a certainly kind of a, a sexual chemistry there uh that becomes there's a vibe there's a vibe it becomes explicit at the end of the at the end of the number um, but yeah, as you say, like Joanne is asking, and I mean, so if there's a if there's a three act play here, in some ways, she sketches three very different situations for women, and so I mean, three three women that we might might or might not see in the company of company, right? So you know, right. the, the, there's the Upper East Side lounging in their caftans and planning a brunch on their own behalf, off to the gym, claiming they're fat. Does anybody still wear a hat, right? So there's the society woman. There's um, right. the girls on the go. Uh, everybody tries. Uh, it, oh, is that the middle one? Oh gosh, I should have the lyrics in front of me. But there, you know, the, the keeping a, a a copy of look, watching to a copy of life just to keep in touch, right? I think that's just that's to keep the, in touch. Yeah. That's the housewife. Where I think we're met, you know, right. like she's she's trying so hard to stay engaged, but she's also in the suburbs raising kids. And then Joanne pivots, right, and sings what I think is meant to be a, a verse about herself, right? The, here's to yeah. the girls who just watch. There, you know, the, the another another. That's that's where I think it's you know like we're, we're vodka stinger, vodka stinger, right? Which is you know like that's where that's Elaine Stritch, right? Sondheim says like yeah. I wrote this song after George Firth, the playwright, told me a story about going out clubbing with Elaine Stritch, and at two in the morning they walk into their you know maybe not their last bar of the night. They've been they're well into their cups. Elaine walks into this club, turns to the bartender, and says, "Just hand me a bottle of vodka and a floor plan," and that becomes <laughs> right. That's where the ladies who lunch comes from. It's Elaine. Stretch, yeah. who is not yet in recovery she's a famous famously alcoholic brash big mouth says whatever no no filter right whatever whatever she thinks comes right out of her mouth there's no pretense with this yeah. woman but the the kind of the heartbreak at the bottom of that i think of that third number is you know uh we're we're just watching we're you know we've, we've got a, a caustic quip about everything and that's very much a protective instinct because we too are scared shitless by right. by the world of relationships, by our own darkness, by the fact that you know we're compensating by drinking too much and that can't possibly continue. We too are living in an existential state of anxiety. And here's to the girls who just watch, aren't they the best? When they get depressed, it's a bottle of scotch plus a little jest. Another chance to disapprove 
another brilliant singer, another reason not to move, another vodka stinger. I'll drink to that. So here's to the girls on the go. Everybody tries. Look into their eyes and you'll see what they know. Everybody dies. A toast to that invincible bunch. The dinosaur surviving the crunch. Let's hear it for the ladies who lunch. Everybody rise. So, you know, here's here's to all these women, everybody rise, right? And actually kind of, I think it's interesting to think about The Ladies Who Lunch and Rose's Turn, which we talked about a couple oh, of weeks good ago. One. Yeah. Right? Like both of them end in a, in a in kind of actually in a very similar way, right? With with a tour de force for the actor, right? I mean, that it's a it's a huge climax at the end of Ladies Who Lunch. Everybody rise, rise, rise. But kind of like in Rose's Turn, right? It's it's the right. same kind of idea, right? Like I forget how Rose's turn ends, but but the same kind of idea, right? Like she's waiting for her applause. The audience gives it to her, but then that that character is left bereft and alone on stage, yeah. desperate, uh, stripped of everything, completely vulnerable. Um, and I think in in company, it's like the the idea at the end is like the Bobby's the one kind of you know applauding. He's the only one. And Joanne turns to him. He's like, "When when are we gonna make it?" And he kind of plays it off like a joke, like, "Oh, ha ha ha!" Like you always, you know, that's you, Joanne, always saying the inappropriate thing. And she, I think, the scene kind of ends with Joanne crestfallen, right? She's made finally made right. her play for the boy that she wants, who is Bobby, and he rejects her. Um, and yeah. then, but then she, you know, I, I think the, the way the the scene goes is like, you know, she's like, "I'll take care of you," and he says, "Well, who will I? I will take. Who will I take care of?" And I think we're meant to see that as like the epiphany moment, right? Joanne says, "Did you hear what you just said? Did you?" And she, I think, I think she says, "Like, I just heard a door open that's been shut a really long time." Yeah. Um, so from and Joanne's, that's what leads into being that's alive. What leads into being alive, right? That Joanne's bid actually for taking care of Bobby, and this is, I mean, this really does have, I think, a lot to say about gender expectations in 1970, right? Bobby's epiphany moment is who will who will I take care of um, right who, who can who will be the little woman that I can protect we might say that's one way we could read it now I, I I hope that's not Bobby's epiphany right that like what I really want is to be the strong masculine presence taking care of a woman in the way that Joanne has just offered to take care of me but the way that the script works I think we are meant to see whatever happens between Joanne and Bobby in that moment I think is meant to be the the, the galvanizing, the epiphany that launches him into being alive. Somebody hold me too close. Somebody hurt me too deep. Somebody sit in my chair. It can't just be casual hookups. I think that's one another way of reading this number, right? Um, there's got right. to be there's got to be more there's got to be more to this than easy free love between two people with no stakes and no no attachments. Yeah, and so in that sense, being alive becomes kind of a a hymn to resilience. A bit of an anthem. Uh, if 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 ladies who lunch is a cynical turn, it's I, I love the notion of it being like Rose's turn from Gypsy. It's exactly what it is. Being alive is is the response to that. Is I mean I, I guess the point is it's worth it. 
it's part of it. Uh, it's, it's worth risking for love, risking for relationship. Yeah, you'll always be sorry. You'll always be grateful. But this is the way you know that you're alive. It's a, it's a huge affirmation of the, for me anyway, yeah. of the energy and beauty of life in its complexity and its messiness. Yes. Uh, and, yeah. And it's pain and it's beauty, you know, it's yeah, all that's, kind of That's there. how I want to see it too, right? Like if, if, if being alive has the power to move me as an audience member, I need to connect with, right? Like I need to connect with that in Bobby and I need to connect. Bobby's a famously uh, almost impossible character, right? Because he, right. you know, it's like, how do you, how do you play this guy? He's just watching all of his friends in their drama. There's nothing there, you know, it took for years for, uh, for Sondheim himself. He says, you know, like it wasn't until like 1996, I finally saw a revival where there was an actor and a director who made choices around Bobby where finally, and actually the, he said the line that moved me was when Amy says to Bobby at the end, make a wish, want something, want something. He's like, I fell apart in the theater for the first time. Finally, this character right. connected with me emotionally. He's Bobby is so famously cold and calculated and cool so if being alive works, I think to your point, right? It has to be, I'm ready to, re I mean, you know, to quote a line from a completely different musical, I'm ready to rejoin the human race before the parade passes yeah. by, right? Yeah. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put myself out there. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm willing to be hurt. I mean, one way we could read Bobby, right? Like, I don't, I don't want anybody to hurt me. And then he, he decides, okay, if the cost of, of human relationships is somebody's gonna hurt me too deep, I guess I'm willing to pay that cost. So yeah, dramatically, maybe I would even say theologically, that's what I, right. that's what I think is going on there. And there's also a part of me that thinks like, is, I mean, back to the, the our kind of our earlier question is, is it a cop out? I mean, is Bobby onto something that's actually much more interesting than um, conventional monogamous, you know, like a kind of one-on-one -on -one yeah, pairing right. up where you, you know, you make your peace with the shit in order to, you know, mine the gold from it. Is, is, that the is that the inevitable answer? Is it the only answer? Or is there, I mean, I think about the, the original ending of Company as it was designed to be, right? The, the conception of these guys was at the end of the show, this guy is gonna say no, right? Like actually the ways that, uh, certainly the ways that men and women's relationships are constituted by the culture right now is bankrupt and I don't want any part of it. And if the price of that is being alone, I will pay that price. I mean, speaking theologically, or maybe just kind of in terms of like church history, I think about, you know, like, I think about Paul, you know, writing in the, I forget which letter, right? Like, yes, I mean, if, if you must marry, go and do it. I wish all of you could be as I was, you know, yeah. kind of like Bobby, right? A sense that like, eh, you know, the way that society codes men and women is inherently destructive, possibly destructive of their very humanity. And that, marital relationships if we're going to you know but but any and maybe any kind of human relationality like makes that really complicated so you know the the gold standard for a lot of christian history has been celibacy it's been monasticism it's been you know kind of basically opting out of the we might say very corrupt very urban very sexualized i mean so there's a, you know, there's all kinds of shades of this right but there's a deep strain in certainly in the christian tradition anyway that says uh human partnering is not certainly not the only pathway to God, maybe not even the best pathway to God. There's there's another way of being a human being in the world that's not about somebody holding you too close and hurting you too deep and sitting in your chair and ruining your sleep and making you can be alive in God. And I don't know, like there, there's a piece there's a piece of me that is deeply unsettled, I guess by and you know maybe i'll i'll speak a little you know like i'm a almost 40 year old gay man who's gone through a divorce relatively recently and has been dating a little bit 
but I don't, you know, like I, I resonate with Rose when she says in Gypsy, like I, you know, it's going to take a lot of butter to get me back in that frying pan. Some of that, I think like I'm, you know, I can, I can see myself in Bobby, right? Like I am st like I, the desire to connect with, with another human being is still there. I certainly don't think marriage is necessarily the only way to do that. I mean, queer people have known that for forever, right? That was our, that was our great cop out, according to some historians, right? That like, there was a promise of queer relationality that has existed for centuries. And then in the last 20 years, it became about fighting for marriage equality. Had to. I don't, you know, I don't regret those. Uh, I was I was part of those conversations. And yet, what do you lose when you put all of your baskets, all your eggs into the basket of a socially legitimized relationship? There are all kinds of ways of forming connections with other human beings, some of them sexual, many of them not. And you can still be alive even if you're not putting all of your eggs in the basket of one person. I really believe that. And actually, I believe that not just uh, psychologically, I believe that theologically. So there's a piece of me that almost wants to push back a little bit on being alive. You know, like there's, Bobby, you have so many options. There are so many ways for you to come alive. It doesn't have to be which girl do I marry. Right, right, right. Yeah, and it kind of comes down to that question of, you know, want something, what is it? and I think you're raising the kind of uh, spiritual question, what is it that, and it's the first question of Jesus in, in John's gospel is, what are you looking for, right? When he encounters the, the disciples, what, what are you looking for? Which is another way of saying, what do you want? What, what do you, what's your quest? And I think, to your point, that one of the things company is doing in its time and continues to do is raise a hermeneutic of suspicion about the overabundant claims of the institution of marriage. Yeah. Is this, is it the sine qua non of human relationships? Mm -hmm. um, is it what, is it, if it's what you want, is it enough? Yeah. And I think your point, there are other ways of being human and being connected and arguing against social isolation that are as a joy that have as much potential for joy and fulfillment as the institution of marriage mm -hmm. and that marriage isn't the only way yeah. or even the best way to go yeah also not a bad way i mean i don't, I don't want to be too you know it's like I, I i love i love the image that company sketches of I mean, it's, it's so honest, but also so beautiful, right? It's the little things you do together, right? I'm yeah, like yeah. my, I feel like my my happiest moments in a marriage were about the little things, right? Like that's Absolutely. that's the magic of being committed to somebody. Yeah, it's hard work. Uh, you stay in it for all the right reasons and all the wrong reasons, and there's a deep ambivalence there. But there is also grace and beauty in the little things you do together, and those yeah. are images of God. I mean, like I I would I. I, I love that company is willing to be that clear-eyed, right? It's not, it's not corrupt. Yeah, it might be problematic in all kinds of ways, but it's also beautiful. Like there is also yeah. such grace in this particularly, uh, this particular socially encoded <laughs> script, which is, as you say, always changing. There's no kind of, uh, there's no fixed nature to it. Uh, but we're always, you know, as, as human societies, we're always remaking marriage to do something that we think is going to be better than the marriages that raised us, our parents. So that kind of evolving nature of human commitment, we might say, if we don't want to put it in a kind of narrow box of marriage. I think, I mean, some ways like company is so beautiful in what it has to say about the nature of commitment, uh, maybe marriage in the mid-century, but I think we can say it more, more broadly than that. And I, there is this, as you say, this kind of deep question at the heart of it, is that all there is? 
Yeah. And, yeah. and what more might there be? What more might there be? And what more might there be? And I think even raising that, raising that question when it did in 1970, at the end of the 1960s, was pretty brave to put on a Broadway stage yeah. for Sondheim and his collaborators. We're a long way from, from the, the couple in Brigadoon, you know, uh, falling in love and living forever in the Scottish Highlands. We're now in a world where we take it as given that people are lonely. They're not necessarily happy in their marriages. They're using psychotherapy to deal with their loneliness. They're drinking too much. <laughs> uh, and life isn't fulfilling and, and searching to say, what's just to your point, you know, the, 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 the great question of, of blessed Peggy Lee, you know, is that all there is? Yeah. Uh, and what more is there? And I think by by asking that question, the company sort of taps into a deep existential anxiety that hasn't stayed located in 1970. But every audience can engage with this material dated as it is. Yeah. Um, Well, and, and I think to kind of kind of return to one of our early questions as we first began this season, right? This is why Sondheim functions as as a religious figure, as a spiritual figure. I mean, like this is, I would say, the deep spiritual question of our times. It's not necessarily framed in any sort of traditional religious framework, but this question of, is that all there is? I mean, you and I both know that is the question at the heart of every spirituality that exists, right? Really, yeah. that's another way of saying, where is God? Why do I feel so alone if there is supposedly a benevolent creator of this whole thing? How do I connect with that person, that force, that thing? Uh, why do I feel so lonely? Where is God in all of this? So in that sense, like I think Sondheim is tapping into something very deep, very primal, articulating that question in a way that makes sense for, we might say, secular people, people who have uh, maybe had dipped their toes in organized religion, but are mostly finding the traditional answers that religion offers deeply unsatisfying. That's what John Robinson's talking about, right? Like we long for honesty. And mostly in 1960, religion is not giving us honesty. Religion is giving us falseness, play acting, uh, conventional conventional notions of human existence that are just no longer satisfying. So Sondheim comes along and I think offers these deeply religious questions for secular people in ways that continue to play. I mean, we see him now, I think, as one of our great spiritual teachers because he's willing to ask these honest questions and not resolve them, right? Not, not necessarily not just them. fix them, um, but open these provocative questions that allow us space to explore um, and I want to say to, you know, to experience God, not in the answer, not in the, 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 the destination of our journey, but along the way, right? Experiencing God in the questioning, in the longing. Um, I mean, that's, I, I don't remember who it is who says, you know, the longing for God is God. Like, it's, yes. not, it's not that you're longing for something that is unfulfilled. Like, the longing itself, that's where God finds you. It's, it, it's, it's in the, the quest for being alive. That's where, that's where we find something that feels um, bigger, bigger than us, bigger than more expansive. Um, and I think in some ways, like that's, that's what company's about, right? It's that longing. Yeah. Yeah. And just to reference one more song, and then we, I know we're, we're running short in our time here, but the getting married today is one of the great tour de force songs for any performer to, to do. And in some ways, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, it, 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 it juxtaposes the marriage trope with the opening and all of these bromides about how wonderful marriage is, the highlight of a life sung in 
uh, churchy tones, usually mm -hmm. with an organ synthesizer underneath, and then this completely unhinged, uh, usually bride, who does this patter song that uh, anticipates or, or maybe plays with the rhythms of the opening of Music Man and anticipates the rap of Lin-Manuel Miranda in its uh, torrent of words, uh, expression of anxiety, it hugely funny, yes. deeply moving, contrasting a kind of image of marriage, uh, an external thing with an internal experience that I think was rooted in the 60s, but hasn't really changed. Listen, everybody, look, I don't know what you're waiting for. A wedding, what's a wedding? It's a prehistoric ritual. Everybody promises fidelity forever, which is maybe the most horrifying word I've ever heard, of, which is followed by a honeymoon. Well, suddenly he realized he's saddled with a nut and want to kill me, which he should. Thanks a bunch, but I'm not getting married. Go have lunch, because I'm not getting married. You've been grand, but I'm not getting married. Don't just stand there, I'm not getting married. And don't tell Paul, but I'm not getting married today. Go, can't you go? Why is nobody listening? Goodbye, go and cry at another person's wake. If you're quick for a kick, you could pick. But please, on my knees, there's a human life at stake. Listen, everybody, I'm afraid you didn't hear it. Do you want to see a crazy lady fall apart in front of you? It isn't only Paul who'll be ruining his life. You know, we'll both of us be losing our identities. I telephoned my analyst about it, and he said to see him money, but got money, will be floating in the Hudson with the other garbage. I'm not well, so I'm not getting married. You've been swell, but I'm not getting married. Clear the hall, because I'm not getting married. Thank you all, but I'm not getting married. And don't tell Paul, but I'm not getting married today. The update on there, on that number, I think in the in the newest production is that "Getting Ready Today" is sung by a gay guy getting ready to marry his his spouse, right? So, yeah. uh, and and he won a he won a Tony Award for it, or, or for or the British the Olivier Award for it, you know. I, so tapping into now, I think the the deep ambivalence that uh, we, we might say gay men feel, I don't know how you, but like you know the queer people are feeling now that we've been you know kind of adopted, you might say, into the socially legitimate norms for relationship, you know, so using that, the kind of the deep ambivalence that a woman might have in 1970, right? A wedding, what's a, what a, what's a wedding? It's a prehistoric ritual where everybody promises fidelity forever, which is maybe the most horrifying word I've ever heard. And then translating that contemporary, right? Like this is now the situation that many queer people are in, right? We, yeah. uh, we, we used to, we used to not have access to this particular mechanism of social legitimacy. There was a lot of freedom in that. There was also a lot of heartbreak yeah. in that. 
Um, so in that yeah. sense, here again, right, the, the material continues to speak, I think, in really interesting ways as our, our sense of what it means to be men, what it means to be women, uh, and how the institution of marriage continues to change and evolve in, in our very own day. Yeah, I, I remember when I was a curate, so 1980, the bishop was coming. Uh, I'd already been in the parish, the cathedral in Hamilton, Ontario, for two or three years. And we got into marriage in 1980. And I said, there is not a couple that I have officiated at their wedding who haven't been well advanced in their intimate lives by the time they come to their wedding day. <laughs> what a politically astute way to say that. Well, and members of the congregation, the bishop was fine. Members of the congregation were horrified in 1980. So 10 years after, Sondheim is already turning a spotlight on this enormous shift in social convention mm -hmm. from the 1950s to 1970. 10 years later, in my experience, this was still news to people. Oh, yeah. And I was astonished that it was news to people. Um, so there was a whole river of denial, you know, that yep. folks were swimming in. And even up until, you know, the 90s and the early part of, of, of the 2000s, the reluctance to embrace and adopt uh, uh, queer people, gay, lesbian, transgender folks into the mainstream of the church came out of a uh, similar kind of denial of the reality of people's lives. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's to Sondheim's credit, and I think it, it is a testament to his brilliance, that he was already putting this on the stage yeah. in 1970 in ways that still, that still read, that still make meaning, yeah. uh, that still raise questions. Yeah. Yeah. And in some way, I mean, you know, like I think about, like I, it's, it's not, been, it's been within the last five years that a bishop said to me, you know, like, I'm not comfortable with my clergy living together outside of the confines. I mean, like we, we the church continues to hang on to this particular, uh, yeah. this particular way of policing human sexuality, we might say. Um, if I'm going to be super crude about it. Um, so yeah, I think the world has moved on in a lot. As you say, sometimes sometimes doing something in 1970, putting, you know, Amy and Paul are living together very clearly as they're getting ready to get married and nobody even blinks an eye. And here we are, you know, 40 years later, 50 years later, that's still, there's still a lot of fraught status there. Yeah. So here again, right? Like the, the way that the church catches up to where culture is, is that always the right, you know, it's like, I think that's the, the, the deep question at the heart of the new morality as the church has right, wrestled with it. You know, is this just a way of, baptizing new cultural norms that maybe allow people, some people, a certain kind of freedom, but actually have nothing to do with justice, responsibility, integrity. Um, I think we're still wrestling with what the new morality means for us as, as human beings, but, but more particularly in churches, right? Like how, how do we make sense of the fact that the rules have shifted dramatically for men and women and our structures, our canons, our scriptures, our traditions have mostly not caught up to that. Should they? Or do we actually have something that's way more interesting to say about human relationality? I think that's a really interesting question. Yeah, I, I'm with you entirely, Nathan. It's up in my top five yep. of uh, most favorite, most important uh, Stephen Sondheim works. And the songs, when we were, when we were putting this together, I sent an uh, email to Nathan saying, I want to talk about every song. Every single song. <laughs> every yeah. single song. And we there's, haven't been able to do that. Covered there's some. not a bad one in the mix. It's a great score. 
And next time, are we into Merrily? I think we're into Follies next time. The, the oh. other, the, in some ways, Company and Follies are, you know, he actually started Follies before Company came to fruition. So Follies right. is actually in some ways the earlier show, but took a little bit longer. Another show that is deeply ambivalent about the institution of marriage. So we might we might see them as in some ways companion pieces. I think that's an interesting way to think about Follies is it's, a, it's, it's being developed at the same time as Company and it's asking some very similar questions about an advancing society and, and who gets left behind as society changes. Yeah. Can't wait. Can't wait, should be fun. Until next time. The Gospel of Musical Theater is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. See you next time.